0: Mystery Theatre presents...
1: This is Christopher Lee, the host of Mystery Theatre. All stories are about what happens next, but worrying about what's in store, that's the very essence of suspense. And if you're not careful, it will drive you crazy. Science fiction is all about what's coming tomorrow. If we succeed in predicting the future, we'll put our worries to rest. At least, that's the theory. Some mysteries involve ordinary men thrust into extraordinary situations. This time on Mystery Theater, I'll present Suspense, starring Judy Garland, a story by Ray Bradbury on Dimension X, and then Frank Sinatra stars as footloose and fancy-free Rocky Fortune. Our first story begins after these words. Welcome back to Mystery Theatre. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Our first drama is a tale well calculated to keep you in suspense. It stars Judy Garland in a role 180 degrees from Dorothy. Here's Drive-In on Suspense.
4: Suspense!
5: I wish I hadn't let Ruth talk me into serving that last car that came into the drive-in that rainy night. It was late and I was tired. I'd been on my feet all day carrying heavy trays, hopping to it with impatient people glaring their headlights on and off in my eyes. Heaven knows there are a lot of impatient people in Hollywood. We car hops don't have an easy time of it. Talk about your mail carriers. Well, we're the same. Raining or blowing or boiling hot. We've got to get through with that tray and know the reason why. Tired, hungry people who sit back in their car expect a million dollars worth of service for a ten-cent tip. Why do we do it? Sure, there are other ways of making a living in Hollywood, but not many that hold that glittering promise that maybe someday, somehow, maybe someone will say...
4: Why, that girl looks like Lana Turner.
5: Yes, at least her hair's done up that
4: way. I think I could use her, Rennie. The musical version of the Forsyth Saga. Oh, she'd be great in color. I think I'll ask her to come out to the studio.
6: Yes, I know.
5: Maybe it doesn't happen often, but there's always the chance. And and there's always that hope. That's what keeps us going, I guess. But there are other things that can happen in a drive-in that aren't on the menu... Like that rainy night I was telling you about when I let Ruth talk me into serving that last car that came in. Millie, Miller, listen, please take his order, will you? i got three cars. Oh, oh look at the but clock, will yeah, It's nearly midnight. I'm off duty. Oh, party. please, Miller, just this once more. My date's waiting. I'll do the same oh, for you. Uh, What's oh, What's the matter with him? Can not he read? Please do not honk your horn. It looks clear enough to me. It's a doctor's car. You see, he's probably in a rush. Anyway, you got nobody waiting for you. Oh, all right. Oh, gee, thanks, Mill. It was true. I... I had no one waiting for me, only the bus that was going to take me to Glendale, where I lived alone in an apartment. So I buttoned up my raincoat and took a menu over to the car. Good evening.
7: Never mind the menu. There's a black coffee, a pot of it, and a ham sandwich. Please hurry it.
5: I took his order over to the car, the window was rolled up a little too far and it interfered with the tray, so I reached in to wind it down. When I touched the handle, it felt wet and kind of sticky, too, but I didn't think anything about it. I got the tray firmly set, and then I looked at my hand. It was as red as blood. I looked up quickly at him.
7: Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Dr. Morgan. I just had an emergency in the car.
5: Oh... An accident?
7: Yes, Sunset and Vine. Quite a crash. I just happened by and I took one of them to the hospital.
5: Oh, gee, that's a shame.
7: Yes, it's too bad.
5: I walked back trying to wipe the blood from my hand with a paper napkin. It, it gave me a creepy feeling to have somebody's blood on my hand. Then I went in to wash. I was trying to keep close track of the time and... I was a little worried for fear the big drive-in clock wasn't right. It sometimes ran slow. So I took a coin from my apron pocket. I figured it was worth a nickel not to miss that last bust of Glendale. I walked over to the payphone and I was about to drop the nickel and when I looked out and he was leaning on the horn and beckoning to me at the same time. I put the nickel back in my pocket and hurried out to him.
7: I'm sorry, but I'm in a hurry. I haven't time for this coffee to cool off. I'll take the sandwich with me. How much do I owe you?
5: Well, uh. I'll be 42 cents. Oh,
7: here you are. Thank you. I hope I didn't interrupt your phone call. It wasn't important, was
5: it? <laughs> no, I was just checking on the time. I don't want to miss my bus. There was
7: a clock right over your head. Well, that's usually wrong. If I have the time, it's about 4 minutes to 12.
5: Oh, I'm going to miss my bus. What time does it leave? At midnight from Hollywood and La Brea. Hop
7: oh, in. I'll take you. I'm going right past there. Oh,
5: would you? I'll take the train. I'll be right back. I might still be able to make okay. it. Okay. Uh, in my hurry to unhook the tray from the window, I gave it a jerk, and it fell crashing to the ground. Oh, dear. Uh, Ruth? Yeah? Look, look, help me with these things, will you? I'm going to miss my well, bus. Go ahead. Go ahead, Mila. I'll get it. I'll get it. We, we picked the things up quickly, and Ruth went off with the tray. I started to run around the other side of the car when I noticed something shining on the ground. It was one of the shakers that had fallen from the tray. I picked it up and started toward the
7: driveway. Uh, why don't you just put that in your pocket? You can return it tomorrow. Come on, you're going to miss your bus.
5: I put the shaker in my apron pocket, and I rushed over to the other side of the car. He opened the door for me, and I was just about to get in when I hesitated. I wasn't used to doing this kind of thing. The other girls sometimes let their customers drive them home, but I never did. Still, he looks so decent, and I... Come on. You'll miss it. Then he reached out as if to help me in, and I felt that he was really concerned about my missing the bus, because he seemed to pull me into the car, First thing I knew, I was sitting beside him. Then the door slammed, and we were driving off. I was a little uneasy, but then I thought it's only a few blocks. I won't be in the car long.
7: I suppose you're in a hurry because someone's waiting for you.
5: No, I... I live alone. But I'd hate to walk back to Glendale in this rain.
7: You won't have to walk.
5: Well, this is very nice of you. I appreciate it.
7: Not at all. Uh, would you mind rolling up that window on your side? There's a draft.
5: Oh, of course. Uh, you can... Uh, let me off at that corner over there. All right. Mm-hmm. Anywhere along here will be all right. This is fine. Right over there by the stop sign. Wait a minute. You're going through the stop signal. Am I? Yes, but I'll, I'll get off over there by the other one. My bus! You're turning the wrong way. Am I? Yes. This, this goes up to Laurel Canyon. Does it? Let me
7: out of here. You thought you were pretty smart, didn't you?
5: I don't know what you mean. Please, let me out of this car.
7: You went right to the phone. You thought I wouldn't see you.
5: The phone? But I was calling about the time. Honest, I was. The time?
7: With that clock over your head.
5: But, but that clock's wrong sometimes. Besides, who, who would I call? Why should I call anyone about you?
7: You were calling the police.
5: No, honest, I wasn't. Let me out of this car.
7: We were gonna catch a bus. You were going straight to the police. That's where you were going.
5: But why? Why should I go to the police? You know why. No, really, I don't.
7: Because you saw it. You saw his blood. No, you don't. There. You won't need to try to open that door again. Now we'll be getting along.
4: Suspense, Roma Wines are bringing you Judy Garland in Drive In. Roma Wines' presentation tonight in radio's outstanding theater of thrills, Suspense. And now, Roma Wines bring back to our Hollywood sound stage Judy Garland as Mildred, with Raymond E. Lewis as the man in Drive In. A tale well calculated to keep you in suspense.
5: After I made that last try to get out, he broke the handle of the door. All the strength seemed to go out of my body. I just sat there as we drove on. We passed a few people and some cars in the next blocks, and I thought of calling out, but... then I knew why he'd asked me to roll up the window when I'd first gotten into the car. Then we were at the mouth of the canyon, and I could see the road, dark and lonely, up ahead. The car twisted and swerved. My arm ached from his strong fingers that had dug into it when I tried to jump out. Looked at him from the corner of my eye. He hadn't seemed like a criminal back at the driving, and he didn't seem like one now. His jaw was black from needing a shave. Still, his face—well, it wasn't like a criminal's at all. It, it was so tired.
7: Quit staring at me.
5: Oh, look, I—I I didn't know anything about you. Honest, I didn't. Please let me go.
7: You know something about me now
5: well i won't tell anybody whatever it is i promise i won't
7: a woman's promises remind me to tell you a story about a woman and promise oh
5: let me out please let me out right here
7: it's a long way back to glendale
5: that's all the better it'll take me hours to get back and you'll be miles away by then
7: i'm not taking any chances with you kid oh
5: please let me out i've got to get back
7: you said no one was waiting for you you live alone don't you No one will miss you. We
5: both heard the siren then. He looked quickly in the rear vision mirror. Then he took a gun from his pocket and he turned to me.
7: If that's for us, and we'll stop remember just this. I've used this gun before tonight and I can use it again if I have to. If I'm taking, you'll go first. Now listen. I'm a doctor and you're a nurse. We're headed for an emergency. If you want to live, you won't try to pull anything.
8: You're awful fast for a wet night, aren't you? Call you up from Hollywood.
7: Uh, I'm Dr. Morgan, officer. This is Nurse Johnson, emergency call. I
8: see your identification.
5: He fumbled through his pockets with one hand, holding the gun in my ribs with the other. The motorcycle cop looked over at me. I thought for a moment I could signal him with my eyes. But then I knew he wasn't looking at my face. He was looking down at my white starched blouse, which you could see under my raincoat.
7: He thought it was a nurse's funeral. Ah,
8: here you are. Okay, Doc. Sorry I stopped you.
7: Hey, just a minute. What's the matter?
8: Just wanted to tell you, rain started to slide up there a ways. Take it easy.
7: Thanks, I will.
5: You're not Dr. Morgan, are you?
7: What are you
3: saying?
5: Then we came on the landslide. It wasn't a big one, but it it had made a terrible mess of the road. He didn't slow down, and the car swerved crazily as it slipped from one side of the highway to the other. Suddenly, I felt as though the whole rear end had slipped down. I looked over at him. He was tense. His muckles turned white as he clutched the wheel. He, he shoved the car into reverse. Oh, I hoped it had never moved. It didn't. We were stuck, hopelessly stuck. Well, the luck. Suddenly, the car was filled with light. A car had come around the curve behind us. This might be by chance.
7: Remember, I still have this gun. Don't try anything. Say, we're stuck here. Could you give us a push? We'll have some California hospitality, will you? I'll have to get out. I'll have to put something under the wheel. You stay here. Now, stay there.
5: There were some bushes by the side of the road. If I could reach him, I could perhaps run up the side of the hill and hide. Then in the morning, make my way back down the canyon. I carefully turned the handle of the door. I could see him in the mirror. He was at the back of the car. I eased the door gently open, put one foot out, I was just sliding out when I heard him. you are not going
7: any place. Come here, give me that raincoat. Why? I need something dry to stuff under this wheel. But I. You won't be needing it. Come on. He practically ripped
5: it off my back, he wound it into a ball, and bending down, he stuffed it under the wheel. The gun stuck out of his back pocket. If I could get it, if I could lay my hands on it, I held my breath. I reached out. It seemed so far, but I finally touched it. Then I snatched it from his pocket swiftly. Look, give me a gun. I'm going. You can't stop me now. Can't I? No. You, you stay right where you are. I won't hurt you. All I want to do is get home. I'm going, but if you follow me, I'll... You're what? I'll kill you.
7: I don't think you will. Yes, I will.
5: You think I'm afraid. Aren't you? No. I don't care what happens to you. You're a murderer. You killed somebody. I thought you
7: didn't know anything about me.
5: I didn't, but I do now, and I'm going to tell the police. You stay where you are. No, don't. I'm not afraid, I'll
7: shoot! Too bad I used up all of those tonight. You could have filled me full of holes. Give me that gun and get in the car. Are
5: you gonna kill me?
7: What do you think?
5: We were nearing the top of the canyon now. The road was very steep. The rain had let up. It was just drizzling now. Even though he hadn't answered my question, I knew the answer. He was going to kill me. I wouldn't get back home tonight. Not tonight or any other night. It was funny. I sometimes used to hate that little apartment of mine, where nothing ever happened. But tonight... And then, for some strange reason, I thought about Ruth. What would she say tomorrow when I didn't show up at work? And I... I wondered where they'd find my body.
7: Well, here we are. Look out, Mountain. Top of the world.
5: Suddenly we came over the crest of the hill And way down below the city stretched out for miles Millions of lights glittering in the rain For a moment I forgot everything It was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen
7: Ever been up here before? No nice, isn't it? Yes. I used to come up here with a girl once. We used to sit and talk for hours. Come on. We'll get a better view if we get out.
5: I knew it was foolish to argue with him, so I followed him. But as he walked over towards the edge, I became frightened it was such a steep drop. Well? Come on. I'm, I'm afraid to get so close to the edge.
7: You won't fall. Look. That's Los Angeles over there. That bright line of lights is Western Avenue. I went to school somewhere along in there. I used to get in all sorts of trouble at school. But I got by and managed. Everyone said I'd grow out of it. Over that way towards the ocean, that's Westwood. That's where she lived. This girl I was telling you about, that was the best part of my life, I guess. That's when they said marriage and a wife would straighten me out. Marriage and a wife would straighten me out in Westwood, they said.
5: (laughs) Does your wife still live there?
7: No. She's dead. I'm sorry. You needn't be. I killed her. Why? Because she couldn't keep her promises.
5: Did you kill her tonight?
7: No. A long time ago. The jury said I was insane. But I think it was the sanest thing I ever did. They put me in an asylum. You know what it's like being locked up year after year when you know there's nothing wrong with
5: you? No. No, I don't.
7: It isn't good. You'd do anything to get out. Anything. Anything.
5: I knew. I knew if I could keep him talking, maybe a car would come along. Maybe something would happen. It was my only chance.
7: What are you thinking about?
5: You. You killed someone else tonight, didn't you? Yes. Dr. Morgan?
7: Yes. He was one of the men who thought I was insane.
5: Why did you do it?
7: I wanted his car to get away, and I didn't want to be locked up anymore.
5: Oh, but th- they'll catch you.
7: No. They won't find the doctor for several days. I saw to that.
5: How can you be so Sure.
7: I do things thoroughly.
5: What are you going to do now?
7: First, I'm going to... And then I guess I'll go south.
5: I knew what he meant by that pause. I started to back away slowly. I'd made a mistake by reminding him in the present. My hands went instinctively to my apron pocket for something to defend myself with. I knew there was a pencil there. It was sharp. Maybe I could scratch him or hurt him some way with it, but when I reached for it, I felt something else instead, something cold and hard. I was puzzled for a moment, and then I remembered. It was a shaker I'd picked up at the drive-in. Stand still. Uh, And then he started moving toward me. Me with only a pencil and a shaker to defend myself with.
7: It's too bad I came into that drive-in tonight.
5: Oh, why did you?
7: Because I was hungry. Because I hadn't eaten for a long time.
5: Weren't you? Weren't you? Weren't you afraid someone would see you?
7: No alarm had gone. How'd you know? I knew. If only you hadn't rolled that window down.
5: Well, if you're sorry, why don't you let me go?
7: It's too late. What's that?
5: With a sudden movement, his arms were around me in a tight embrace. I started to scream, but suddenly his lips closed over mine. Pushing my head back roughly, he kissed me. I could scarcely breathe, and I... I felt the car's headlights on us like a spotlight. Uh,
4: Just look at this view, will you? (laughs) I'll have to do this in a picture sometime. Can't you see you're interrupting something? Come on, drive on, will you? Okay, okay. And in all this rain, you'd think people would have some more sense.
5: He held me a moment longer. When the car had gone, he released me. My pencil had fallen to the ground. I was left with only the shaker in my hand. I fingered it nervously and then I felt the top coming off. I felt the content spilling in my
7: hand. What have you got in your hand? Nothing. Give it to me. No! Give it to me!
5: He grabbed my wrist. He pulled me toward him. We were moving to the edge of the cliff, but my other hand was free, and I threw the contents of the shaker into his face. His hands flew to his face in an effort to clear his eyes, but I knew it was too late. The pepper had blinded him. He lunged out for me, but I stepped aside quickly, and he slipped in the mud. His hands went out to steady himself. He clawed frantically at them, in. then I saw him falling over backwards over the edge. <laughs> Then my strength gave way and I felt myself sinking down to the ground. I don't know how long I must have been there. But when I came to, it was raining again. I was soaked to the skin and there was mud caked in my hair. There was no one in sight. The lights of Los Angeles stretched out in a pattern peacefully below. And I knew that somewhere at the foot of those hills was Glendale. And my apartment... I rose slowly to my feet and I started back toward the road. Somehow, everything that had happened seemed unreal. Like a dream. Everything but the way he kissed me. To keep me from crying out.
4: Tonight's Suspense play was written by Mel Donnelly and Muriel Roy Bolton. Suspense! This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.
1: That's Judy Garland in Drive-In, originally broadcast on Suspense, November the 21st, 1946. Next, we'll rocket into the future on Dimension X.
8: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream.
9: So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This is Christopher Lee welcoming you back to Mystery Theater. Let's listen now to Dimension X with Ray Bradbury's famous story, The Martian Chronicles. Dimension
10: X.
4: On stage tonight, Dimension X.
0: Tonight, Dimension X presents The Martian Chronicles. A dramatization of the new novel by one of our most brilliant young science fiction writers, Ray Bradbury. The Martian Chronicles. January in the year 1999. One minute it was Ohio winter with doors closed, the panes blind with frost, icicles fringing every roof, children skiing on snowy slopes, and then a long wave of warmth crossed the small town, a flooding sea of hot air.
11: Bye, Mom, I'm going out. William McClellan, you come back here. You know you can't go out in winter without a cold. You want to catch your death of cold? But it isn't cold. It's warm outside. It's rocket summer. Rocket summer? You know, like Indian summer.
0: The rocket lay on the launching field, blowing out pink clouds of fire and heat, cracking the icicles, melting the snow, making summer with every breath of its mighty exhausts. It seared the faces of the watching crowd and drove them back. And then they saw the red fire and heard the big sound as the silver rocket shot up toward Mars and left them behind on an ordinary Monday morning on the ordinary planet Earth. They lived in a house of crystal pillars on the planet Mars by the edge of an empty sea. And every morning you could see Ela. ...eating the golden fruits that grew from the crystal walls... ...or her husband sitting alone in his room... ...reading from a singing metal book... ...over which he brushed his hand as one might play a harp. Ela and her husband were not old. Once they had liked painting pictures with chemical fire... ...swimming in the canals when the wine trees filled them with green liquors... ...and talking into the dawn together. But no more. Marriage sometimes makes people old and familiar while still young. And Ila was not happy now. This morning, she sat dreaming between the crystal pillars and wished that somehow a miracle might happen. And then suddenly... Ila, did you call? No. I thought I heard you cry out. Uh,
6: Did I? I was almost asleep and had a dream.
0: In the daytime? Hmm. You don't often do that.
6: Strange. Strange. Oh, very strange. I dreamed about a man. A tall man. Six feet tall.
0: Oh, how absurd. He'd be a giant, a misshapen giant.
6: I know. And yet, somehow he looked quite handsome. He was dressed in a strange uniform. And he came down out of the sky in a long silver craft.
0: Out of the sky? (laughs) What nonsense. He
6: spoke pleasantly to me in another language. But somehow I understood him... With my mind. Telepathy, I suppose. A
10: really, Eli. he said,
6: I've come from the third planet in my ship. My name is Nathaniel York.
0: Stupid name. Who ever heard of a name like that?
6: Perhaps they have names like that on Earth.
0: That's ridiculous, Hila. Everyone knows the third planet is incapable of supporting life. There's too much oxygen in their atmosphere.
6: I suppose. But haven't you ever wondered if... Well, wouldn't it be fascinating if there were people there... And they traveled travel through space in some sort of ship. Oh,
0: really, Ela? You know, I hate this emotional wailing. Well, let's get on with our work. Evening came. The twin white moons of Mars were rising. And the house closed itself in like a giant flower. A wind blew among the pillars, staring Ela's russet hair, crooning softly in her ear. And it was then that she began singing the song.
6: Drink to me only, mm, thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine. know,
0: what's that song?
6: I don't know.
0: What do you mean you don't know? I've never heard it before. Did you compose it?
6: No. Yes. No, I don't know, really. I don't even know what the words are. They're in another language. It was part of the dream I had, I guess.
10: Oh. You
0: know, you haven't been yourself lately. It might do you good if we went away to the Blue Mountains for a week or so. Uh, What? Did you hear what I said?
6: I'm sorry. I was watching the sky.
0: You're certainly interested in the sky tonight. It's very beautiful. Well, what about my suggestion? Shall we leave for the Blue Mountains in the morning?
6: You mean? Go
0: away now! Oh no! No, why not? Why don't you want to go?
6: I don't know. I just don't want to. That's all.
0: Ela, I'm sick of that silly song. It's late. Let us sleep. the crystal walls poured a soft carpeting of mist to support Ela where she lay down to sleep. But through the night she tossed restlessly until just at dawn the dream recurred. Oh. Ella, Ella, wake up!
6: What? Oh, what is it?
0: You've been dreaming again. You talked in your sleep. Did I? Yes. What were you dreaming?
6: Oh, the ship. It came from the sky again. And the tall man stepped out and talked with me. <laughs> telling me little jokes and laughing.
4: What else happened?
6: And then this this Captain York... Oh, I can't. It's all so silly. Tell me! He said I was beautiful. And then he
0: kissed me. I thought so. What else?
6: Why, Eel, you're so bad-tempered. It's only a dream. Is
0: it? You know I can read your mind. You can't keep secrets from me.
6: Well... All that happened was this... Captain York told me... Well, he told me he'd take me away in his ship. Into the sky. Take me back to his planet with him. (laughs) It's quite ridiculous, really.
0: Ridiculous, is it? You should have heard yourself. Fawning on him, talking to him, singing with him all night. In your dream, he landed in Green Valley, didn't he? Please. And he told you he was coming today.
6: Yes. But what's come over you... only a dream you can't be jealous of that
0: no no i suppose not forgive me i'm being childish
6: you're sick you've been working too hard no
0: no i'm all right but perhaps you're right maybe i could use a little relaxation yes i think i'll take the morning off and go hunting hunting yes in green valley Numbly, she watched him go to a closet and draw forth an evil-looking weapon. And then her husband was gone, walking toward Green Valley. And Ella waited, watching the sky for an unknown thing, trembling with a nameless fear. And then it happened. A whirring, rushing sound. The warmth as of a giant fire passing in the air. The gleam of metal in the sky. He's
11: come, it's true, the dream is true.
0: The rocket vanished over the hill. The sky was empty again, and trembling, Ela waited again, looking toward Green Valley and seeing nothing, listening for sounds and hearing nothing, until... A shot sounded very sharply, the sound of the evil weapon.
12: No, 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 no.
0: Her body jerked with the sound, and she wanted to scream and never stop screaming. For now she knew the dream could never come true. There was nothing left but the song, the strange and fine and beautiful song.
6: Drink to me only with thine eyes, and I will pledge with mine, or leave a kiss within the
12: cup. (laughs)
0: But still the rockets came The next ship came down from the stars And the black velocities And the silent gulfs of space And landed by night Near a Martian city The men made their way to the outer rim of the dreaming city. And then Jeff Spender went in to reconnoiter while the others watched and waited. Waited for something to stir in the haunted city, some gray form to rise, some voice to break the unearthly stillness. Where were the people? Where were the Martians? Nothing stirred to disturb the silence until. Halt!
10: Who goes there? Don't shoot! Hold it, Parker. Let's spend her and his party. They're coming back. Captain Wilder, over here.
13: Well? Captain, we've searched the city. People were living here last week. People? Martians. Where are they now? Dead. Dead. What did they die of? You won't believe it, Captain. Chickenpox. Good Lord, no. Yes. No resistance to an Earth disease, I guess.
10: So the other rocket did get through to Mars. It
13: looks like it, Captain. God only knows what the Martians did to them. But at least we know what they did to the Martians.
8: You mean they're all dead? Yes. This planet is through. Hey, you hear that, guys? We're safe. <laughs> Break out a bottle, Cookie. Let's have a drink to celebrate. Stop it, Park Put down that bottle. What's eating you, Spender? The planet's ours now. We got a christener, don't we? <laughs> I christen thee the city of... Uh, I christen... Hey, Park Hill City. How Park da... Hill, I warned you. All
10: right, Spender, that's enough. That'll cost you a $50 fine. Crookie McClure, take care of Park Hill. Spender, you come with me.
13: All right, Spender, why did you hit him? I don't know, Captain. I was ashamed, I guess. Ashamed of Sam Parkhill and the noise and the spectacle the whole crew is making. It's been a long trip. It's only natural they'd want to have their fling. Yes, but where's their sense of what's right? Their respect for what's happened here. Captain, a race builds itself for a million years. Refines itself. Builds cities like this one. Does everything it can to give itself respect and beauty and... And then it dies. Of what? Not anything fine or majestic or fitting, but but a dirty little thing like chicken pox. And Sam Parkhill wants to celebrate. I know, Spender, but you've got to remember you've a different way of seeing things. I'm seeing things all right. I'm seeing what we'll do to Mars. We'll rip it up, rip the skin off, ruin it the way we've ruined our own planet. Captain, look at the city. It may be the last time you'll ever see it this way.
10: Beautiful in the moonlight,
13: isn't it? Yes. There's a poem by Byron that describes it... and how the Martians would feel tonight... if there were any any of them left. So we'll go no more a-roving so late into the night... Though the heart be still as loving, and the moon be still as bright. For the sword outwears its sheath, and the soul wears out the breast. And the heart must pause to breathe, and love itself must rest. Though the night was made for loving, and the day returns too soon, yet we'll go no more a-roving by the light of the moon.
0: Without a word, the Earth men stood and looked at the city. The bottle lay shattered at Sam Parkhill's feet, and the sour stench of liquor filled the cool air. The men of Earth had come to Mars.
1: More from Dimension X after this. Now, back to Dimension X. The
0: men of Earth came to Mars. They came because they were afraid or unafraid, because they were happy or unhappy, because they felt like pilgrims or did not feel like pilgrims. The government posters screamed, there's work for you in the sky, see Mars! The men shuffled forward, all kinds of men, all coming for different reasons. The rockets came like drums beating in the night. They came like locusts swarming and settling in blooms of rosy smoke. Mars was a distant shore, and the settlers spread upon it in waves, first the pioneers and builders, then the people of civilization. Some came because they were afraid of a coming war on earth. Some came because they were afraid of nothing. Some came to escape from the smell of the subways and the cabbage tenements. And some came from houses like the one in Ohio. It was a good house, the house in Ohio. And for six years, the family had lived there contentedly, enjoying music and poetry, and the rich, warm things of life. For the house had been built to be lived in in the year 2020. It contained all the latest automatic devices, from talking book recorders to singing clocks. Tick-tock,
8: seven o'clock, time to rise,
0: open your eyes.
8: Tick-tock, seven o'clock,
0: time to rise, open your eyes. As the family rose and dressed, The beds whirred electronically and made themselves. In the kitchen, the stove sighed and ejected from its warm interior eight eggs, sunny side up, 12 bacon slices, two coffees, and two glasses of milk.
8: Seven, nine, breakfast time. Come and dine,
0: seven, nine. Beside the breakfast table, the facsimile machine clacked and deposited the morning paper on the table. The headlines today spoke ominously of the danger of a coming war. And the man frowned as he read the news. Today is August 4th, 2026. Insurance, gas, and atom heat bills are due. And today, remember, the family has planned a picnic.
5: Gee, Dad, are we really going?
10: Sure, Timmy, why not?
5: It's raining out.
10: It's not raining where we're going, son. Now run upstairs and pack your fishing tackle. We're going on our picnic, all right.
5: Okay,
6: Dan. Bill... Are you sure we ought to go?
10: Yes. Have you seen the headlines this morning? Uh, looks bad, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. The rocket's ready. All we have to do is pack and take off.
6: I know, but... Well, flying to Mars, it seems so crazy. Well, all right, then, we'll go. Should we tell the children why we're going?
10: No, not yet. Let them enjoy the picnic. <coughs>
0: The house went on with its appointed tasks. 9:15, time to clean. 9:15, time to clean. Out of the molding darted hundreds of tiny mechanical mice, all rubber and metal. They sucked up the dust and dirt in the house and popped back into their burrows. In the walls, relays clicked. Memory tapes glided under electric eyes. Recorded voices moved under steel needles. 12 o'clock. evening came. In the living room the hearth fire bloomed out of nothing and the phonograph spoke from beside the fireplace. Mrs. McClellan what poem would you like to hear this evening? Mr. McClellan since you express no preference I shall select at random from among your favorites Sarah Teasdale There Will Come Soft Rains
11: There Will Come Soft Rains and the smell of the ground and swallows circling with their shimmering sound and frogs in the pool singing at night, and wild plum trees in tremulous white. Robins will wear their feathery fire, whistling their whims on a low fence wire, and not one will know of war, not one will care at last when it is done. Not one would mind neither bird nor tree if mankind perished utterly, and spring herself when she woke at dawn, but scarcely know that we were gone.
0: The phonograph finished the poem, but there was no one there to hear, for the family had gone to Mars. <laughs> On the Martian desert beside the highway, there rose a blare of red and yellow neon lights that spelled the death of Jeff Spender's dream. Sam's hot dog stand was what the sign read. And Sam, of course, was the same Sam Parkhill who had fought with Spender years before. 10,000 rockets were reported leaving soon for Mars with a 100,000 hungry customers. And Sam wanted to be ready for them. Hey, look up there, Mm Huh?
8: See that green star up there? That's Earth. Ah, uh, good old wonderful Earth. <laughs> Makes you feel almost reverent, don't it? Yeah. Sammy, you're hungry and you starved. Uh, something, something. That's a poem I learned in school. <laughs> come on, Earth, send me your rockets. Here's Sam Parker, with the only hot dog stand on Mars.
6: Sam, <laughs> what if the rockets don't come? What if there's a war on Earth?
8: Ah, don't worry. They're coming, all right. Ain't nothing going to happen to spoil my plans, baby. I figured it all out. Sam! I... Hey, Sam, look up there. Earth! Oh, what? Oh, no. It's
6: catching fire. It's burning. Oh, no,
8: no. That can't be Earth. Hell, they can't do this to me. I got all our money invested <laughs> in this place. I...
6: Go ahead, Sam. Switch on more lights. Turn up the music. Get the hot dogs on the fire. There'll be another batch of customers coming along in about a hundred million years.
8: Oh, no, it couldn't be. What
6: a swell spot for a hot dog stand. Let you know in on a little secret, Sam. This looks like it's going to be an off season.
0: The light beam radio crackled with the news. Oh. 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 By morning, the shelves of the luggage store were empty... and the rockets were blasting off, headed back to Earth. In a few days, everyone was gone. And the planet of Mars once more lay deserted and silent. And then, after all the rest had gone... One last rocket landed on Mars. A small, family-sized rocket come all the way from Earth. It seemed a long way to go for a picnic, but Dad had suggested a fishing trip, and Mother thought the whole family would enjoy a vacation. So here they were, floating down a Martian canal, with Timothy sitting in the back of the boat with Dad and Mother up front holding Alice the baby, and the deserted Martian
10: towns drifting slowly by. Dan? What is it, Timmy?
5: When do we see the Martians? You promised we would.
10: Soon, Tim, soon.
5: Oh, but, William,
6: the last Martians died out years ago. They're a dead race now.
10: Not quite. Don't worry, son. I'll show you some real live Martians later on.
5: Gee, this is swell. I wish we didn't ever have to go home. How long can we stay?
10: A million years.
5: A million years?
10: Yes. It's time we told you, son, we're not going home. This is where we'll live from now on.
5: But what about the rocket? What about Ohio? There's
10: nothing there now but ruins. The last Earth radio just went off the air. That means the war is over and Earth is finished. We're going to blow up our rocket and start all over. See if we can't build a better world up here.
1: You mean
11: Mars is going to be our home?
10: Yes. I hope you don't mind too much.
5: No, sir. But what about the Martians? When do we get to see them?
10: There they are, son. Look down at the water.
5: I don't see anything there.
10: Beside the boat. Look at the reflections in the water.
5: But, but that's us down there. Just you and me and Mum and the baby. Yes, son.
6: You see, we're the Martians now.
0: For a long, silent moment... Timmy stared down at the reflections of the family in the waters. And the Martians stared back up at him. Then he lifted his eyes to the deep ocean sky, trying once more to see Earth and the house he had always called home. But Earth was too far away, and the house was now only a heap of radioactive rubble. Only one wall remained standing, and within the wall a voice spoke again and again and again.
11: Not one would mind, neither bird nor tree, if mankind perished utterly, and spring herself when she woke at dawn, would scarcely know that we were gone, that we were gone, that we were gone, that we were gone,
8: that we were gone, today is October 5th, 2026, today is October 5th, 2026.
4: You have just heard The Martian Chronicles, a dramatization of highlights from the new novel by Ray Bradbury, The World of... Dimension X.
10: <laughs> the preceding was transcribed on NBC.
1: You've just heard Ian Martin and Jan Minor on Dimension X in Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles, originally broadcast August the 18th, 1950. In a moment, Frank Sinatra stars as Rocky Fortune. Welcome back to Mystery Theater. I'm your host, Christopher Lee. Time now for Rocky Fortune. Rocky Fortune was a good-natured drifter who each week found himself in the middle of a predicament. Sometimes that predicament spelled murder. Frank Sinatra stars now in Oyster Shucker on Rocky Fortune. Frank Sinatra, transcribed as Rocky Fortune.
14: (laughs) Sinatra, who stars as that footloose and frequently unemployed young gentleman, Rocky Fortune. about me and employment. We start out together, but sooner or later we reach the fork in the road. Usually sooner. You take last week. The employment agency sent me out on a job as an oyster shucker. But somebody tried to serve me up on a half shell with a real crazy cocktail sauce. Blood. Pardon me, is this the uh, Fifty Fathoms Clam House?
15: Yes. Is there something I can do for you?
14: That's the best offer I've had all day.
15: We'll have a table in a minute. Would you care to look at the menu?
14: What's the menu got that you haven't got, there? A
15: price list. <laughs> if you'll excuse me, I'm busy. Now, wait a minute. Don't
14: get sore. I work here. I'm the new oyster shucker. I'm Rocky Fortune.
15: Well, you'd better go around to the kitchen, Mr. Fortune. Just call
14: me Rocky, huh? Eh? And I'll call you two or three times a day.
15: Don't bother. Why not? For one thing, I've got a boyfriend.
14: Now, why would we let a little thing like that come between us?
15: Maybe because he's standing right behind you. Oops.
14: He isn't exactly standing behind me. It's more like all around me. This joke is six foot four, 200 pounds on the hoof, and broad enough to go through the middle of a revolving door. And I can't figure a gorilla like this with this girl. She's a real sweet little girl, like somebody's kid sister. Only she's wearing a knit dress, and she's got a figure that's giving the warp and the woof a hard time. I get a glimmer when she introduces me to the bruiser.
15: Mr. Fortune, this is Mr. Barney. He's the manager.
14: All right, Fortune, get back to the kitchen. I'll give you a personal introduction to a barrel of oysters. This way. And, Fortune. Yeah? Stay away from Iris. Who says so? I say so. Here's your counter. Shell's in the garbage can. And this is the oyster knife. Right. And just so as we don't misunderstand each other, I'm very serious about Iris. Very serious. Hey, look out with that knife. You understand, Fortune? I got an inkling. Now get to work and shut them oysters. Oh. It takes me a few minutes to pull the dough bladed oyster knife... two inches out of the table where Big Barney has buried it. About this time, Ferdinand, the waiter drifts in the door. Ferdy's a little wispy guy who looks like the mechanical rabbit... the greyhounds chase at the dog track.
16: A thousand cherry
14: stones! Hey! Who are you? Rocky Fortune. I'm the new oyster shucker. What happened to Harmon? Maybe he got washed out with the tide. Hey, pal, when do I get something to eat here?
16: Didn't you get some supper? No. That Barney, no consideration. Look, I'll fix you something. Uh, I've been looking at the menu. How about the swordfish? Uh-uh. No? To my best friend, I wouldn't recommend the swordfish. Not tonight. Wait a Yes, sir? Mr.
8: coming in. Excuse me.
16: Hey, Chief, give me two double-stripped cocktails, a crab meat salad, lobster gumbo, a bowl of Boston, a bowl of Manhattan, and a bucket of lobsters.
14: What do you got out there? Rotary
16: luncheon? No, just Mr. Abenaki.
14: I take a peek through the kitchen door, and Mr. Abenaki is sitting on two chairs at once and is still lapping over on all sides. Barney and Ferdinand are hovering around him like a pair of hummingbirds trying to neck with a navy blimp. I make a resolution to quit eating french fried potatoes and go back to unbuttoning oysters and remove their overcoats. It's lovely work, so I strike up a conversation. There's nobody in the pantry but me and the oysters, so I got no choice. You think you've got troubles? Hmm, I'm the one that ought to get stewed. You got it soft. You don't have to worry what happens if your lady friend decides to clam up. All you gotta do is just lay there, that's all. If you want to make an impression on a dame, all you got to do is whip up a a pearl. Holy smokes, a real live pearl. It's a real live pearl sitting in the middle of that oyster staring up at me with its one beautiful beady eye. I'm figuring on calling little Arthur the book to place a fin on the nose of Pearl Diver in the 5th at Belmont when I open the next oyster. So help me, another pearl. I haven't had a run of luck like this since I busted up the floating crap game in Doherty's garage. So I leave the stake out and shoot it all. Another oyster. Another pearl. Come on, baby. Papa needs a new necklace. One after another. And every little darling loaded. I'm trembling as I hit number 10... Eleven and twelve. Twelve great big fat pearls in my hot little hand and all mine. Just to make sure, I stash them away in my pocket quick as Ferdinand, the waiter, comes in the door.
16: Two dozen special oysters for Mr. Abenaki.
14: Buddy boy, I never could see nothing special about no oysters. It's like eating a clammy handshake. Get them
16: up, and I'll pick them up on the way out. The specials for Mr. Abenaki come out of this barrel. And don't shuck him. He likes them open at the table. He says it improves the flavor.
14: Yes, sir, Sergeant. Unfortunately, Barney has forgotten to tell me this, and I've already separated Mr. Abenaki's special oysters from their shells. Now, to me, the difference between a couple of oysters is something that can only interest another oyster. So I fill up a plate from the regular barrel. This, it turns out, is a mistake. Through the doors, I hear Mr. Abenaki sounding off like the bullhorn on a big mow. And Ferdinand comes flying back like a scared a- pigeon. What
16: happened? What happened to the special
14: oysters? Who oh, is responsible for this?
16: Please, Mr. Abenaki.
14: I uh, special oysters shipped in just for me, and what do I get?
8: Call these oysters these miserable scrawny blobs. What happened to Mr. Abenaki's oysters? You, Fortune. Me? What happened to the specials?
14: It was just a little mistake. A mistake. A mistake with my oysters. Please, Mr. Robin, I... what happened? I opened them first. Nobody told me any different. You hear that? He opened my oysters. All that flavor, gone, gone forever. What is this, a federal case? You feather-headed idiot. Now, wait a minute. uh, uh, The customers can hear you. Fortune, you lame you apologize to Mr. Abbott. Okay, okay, to him I'll apologize. But you, you muscle-headed bum. Well, you scrawny knucklehead, I gotta pry you apart like a charter clam. Why don't you put your money where your mouth is?
15: Mr. Barney, I'm sure it was an honest mistake... Why don't you give him another chance?
14: You shut up and keep out of this. Hey, who do you think you're talking to? You ought to wash your mouth out with soap before you talk to a lady. Fortune,
15: you're fired. Oh, no. Please, Mr. Barney. You
14: keep out of this. Take him up front and pay him off. I always fishes me a couple of bucks out of the register. And I can see she's a little sorry for me, which makes me feel very pleasant indeed.
15: Here you are, Mr. Fortune. I wish it was more. Oh,
14: well, easy come, easy go. I just wish I was staying on, though, so I could see you again.
15: It took a lot of courage to stand up to Barney like that.
14: I still have the oyster knife.
15: (laughs) I wish there was something that I could do. How about splitting a steak with me
14: tonight, huh? After all, I just got fired, and I shouldn't be left alone with a knife.
15: Well, I suppose it's all right.
14: Meet you when you get off. Is it a date?
15: All
14: right, Rocky. I'm off at nine. I figure bounced a nut on my head for the day. Twelve pearls and a beautiful girl. This is better than the daily double. It's about 8.45 when I head out the back door. It's a very cozy neighborhood. You can sometimes go as far as a block without stumbling over a drunk or being mugged for a pair of clean socks. So I'm not too surprised when an arm whips around my neck and I cease breathing until further notice. Don't oh, say a word. Who can talk? This ain't no briar pipe sticking in your back. Okay, okay. Hand them over. Anything in particular? You know what I'm talking about? Hand them over. And Mac, this may make me seem a little slow, but I haven't got the slightest idea what you're talking about. The pearls, wise guy. The pearls, you got them. Oh, then. Didn't your mother ever tell you it ain't polite to shortstop? Now pass them over. They're mine. I found them. Okay, okay. Hand them over. Over my dead body. That can be arranged. All right, wise guy. I'll give you a quick five to hand them over. One. Hey, you're kidding, aren't you? Two. Okay, okay. I got them right here. Three. Right here. Hey, they're gone. Four. Honest, I put them in his pocket, see? I said four. Look, look, there's a hole in it. Look, I can wiggle my finger through it. Five. If you don't believe me, look for yourself. Yeah. Okay, hold still. I'm ticklish. You're clean, All right. Listen, punk, I'll give you a chance. You got 12 hours to hand those pearls over. But I lost them, aren't I? You lost them, you find them. Remember 12 hours or we'll fit you for a brand new satin-lined overcoat with silver handles. And just to show you we ain't kidding... <laughs> Later, the world slows down to a gentle spiral. Some other bum has rolled me for 38 cents in change, a subway token in my shoes. I paddle around to the avenue on my bare feet, and I find Iris waiting in front of a drugstore looking like Hurricane Barbara, about to hit the Atlantic coast from Block Island to Cape Hatteras.
15: Rocky, this is not the kind of a neighborhood where a girl likes to wait for... What's the matter? You're limping.
14: I stepped on a live cigar butt.
15: Well, you're barefoot where are we going to a square dance
14: look honey i'm afraid our date's off why i gotta attend a funeral whose mine
15: what are you talking about there seems
14: to be a difference of opinion about some pearls i told the guy i found them but he couldn't see it my way
15: you found some pearls yes where
14: where else in an oyster 12 of them
15: you found 12 pearls in one oyster
14: no no one each in a dozen how's that for luck nobody's that lucky but now I can't find them. I got a hole in my pocket. I must have dropped them.
15: Oh, that's terrible.
14: You don't know the half of it. The guy who just slugged me gave me 12 hours to cough up the pearls or else. A particularly nasty else.
15: Oh. Oh, well, then we've got to start looking for them. Right now.
14: Right now, i got to look for some shoes. A guy can get athlete's foot this way. <laughs> We head back into the Fifty Fathoms Clam House to try to find the pearls. I'm cutting my bare feet to ribbons on broken clam shells. We go through the sawdust in the pantry a spoonful at a time, but we draw a blank. No pearls. Up to now, I've been thinking I'm just lucky. But slowly, I realize I've been playing with marked oysters. I figure them pearls must be hot as a tin roof in August.
15: Rocky, what happens if we don't find them? They might kill you.
14: Yeah. I was thinking that was a possibility, too.
15: Well... Where else could you have dropped them? Is there anything on the floor of a garbage can or something?
14: Wait a minute. There was that little barrel that Mr. Abenaki's oysters came in. It was right by this stool.
15: Maybe the pearls dropped in it.
14: But the barrel's gone, too.
15: Of course. They pick it up at night and take it back to the oyster boat.
14: Can you find out which boat?
15: I know. I sign the receipt every day. It's the, it's the Polly B at Pier 22. Oh, Rocky, do you think the pearls could still be in the barrel?
14: Well, I got a hasty feeling I'd better find out. Anyway, if Abenaki's oysters came from that boat, then so do the Pearls.
15: Rocky, I'm going with you.
14: Now, look, honey, it's going to be dangerous and dark down on that dock.
15: You'll be there.
14: I know. That's what frightens me. Well, come on. Let's head for Pier 22. And if I don't find the Pearls, well, at least it's a good place to jump off. I'm still barefoot as we head up the waterfront to Pier 22, but I keep going. I figure it's like a horse. If I pull up lame now, I'm a sensi to get shot. Pier 22 looks like the spot where Henry Hudson dropped his anchor on the first trip. There's a crap game going on at the dock office. We wait until somebody makes a four the hard way and slip through in the confusion. The oyster boat is halfway down the pier, and we go aboard. (laughs) Don't chip on them ropes.
15: Isn't that the barrel? Right
14: there? That's it. That's it, all right. I'll tip it up to the light. Empty as a pocket before payday.
15: Oh, Rocky.
14: I wonder where the elephants go to die.
15: Rocky. Rocky, listen.
14: Yeah. Somebody must have broken up the crap game. They're coming this way.
15: Well, what are we going to do?
14: That guy who put the arm on me is with him. You see the guy with no nick? Yeah. Come on, we better hide. Well, where? Down the hatch behind us.
15: I oh, can't jump down there, not in this skirt. In it or
14: out of it. Here you go.
15: Oh. Oh, it's dark down here. Look
14: out. Here I come. Now, keep quiet, baby, and maybe we'll get out of this thing in one piece. All right. Let's get going. Pass
8: off the
15: bar line. What is it? What's happening?
14: Did you bring me a toothbrush?
15: A toothbrush? What for?
14: I can only think of one thing to say at this point. What? Bon Bon voyage. Merry class. It's sort of a cross between an oversized shoebox and the Staten Island Ferry. It would probably rock like crazy in a bathtub, and by the time we're through the Narrows and into the Lower Bay, Iris has turned a tasteful tone of green which unfortunately clashes with her purple dress.
15: Oh, Rocky, I'm afraid I'm going to die. No, you're not. Okay, I'm, I'm afraid I'm not going to die. Shh,
14: somebody will hear you. I
15: don't care. There's
8: your boy. Moran,
15: the boy. What What happened? We're stopping. Maybe we
14: hit a red light. So, you men, get the
15: net on the side. Come on, hurry up. What is it? Oysters?
14: I don't know. I better boost you up so you can sneak a peek. You ready? Mm-hmm. Well?
15: It's a barrel, Rocky. They pulled it in with a net. Rocky, it's got a, a flag on it. Let me down. Uh, I got it
14: now. Just like prohibition. Someone on an incoming line it dumps the stuff over.
15: And this boat picks it up.
14: Yeah, and delivers it to the Fifty Fathoms Clam House. What a way to sneak in pearls inside an oyster. And if some jerk opens one by mistake, he just thinks he's lucky. Can you imagine a guy stupid enough to think he'd really find a pearl in an? Um... You read any good books lately?
15: Rocky, it's... It's a smuggling racket...
14: Maybe you're even smart. That's right. I could kiss you. I have my eyes closed and my mouth puckered when the roof falls in, and I find myself kissing a thirty-pound flounder which is part of a load of fish dumped in on top of us. We're standing up to the naked, fresh caught ocean fish and season. I pick a herring out of my ears and look around for Iris. And once again, I get that funny feeling. You know, that yearning to take her out of all of this. A poly bee makes it back to the pier in blue ribbon time. And when the coast is clear, Iris and I climb out of the fish and shake off the scales. I've got a smelt in my pocket and a certain air about me.
15: Ooh, I can't even stand myself.
14: I think it's invigorating.
15: Uh, Rocky, you know it's clear. You got the pearls by mistake.
14: Yeah, those oysters were meant for Mr. Abenaki. They're delivered specially for him.
15: It must be, Rocky. So, what do we do now?
14: Uh, honey, as much as I hate disturbing a man at his meal, Mr. Abenaki leaves me no choice. He eats all day. <laughs> There's a limit to how long a dame can wander through town with seaweed in her hair and a strong suspicion that barnacles have set in. So Iris heads up to her apartment to change. I figure I might as well head over to the clam house to do a little digging on my own. It's midnight now, and Ferdinand's in the kitchen when I get there.
16: Say, hey, what happened? You jump off the ferry?
14: Never mind. Listen, has Abenaki still got his nose in a feed bag? He's on his demitasse. Demitasse? Yes, he has to watch his weight. Look, Ferdinand, about those special oysters... Mr. Abenaki never has them open in the kitchen, right?
16: Right. He's a very particular man. He wants to make sure all the flavors locked in.
14: I'll bet he does. Fred, man, this may come as a shock to you, but something tells me Mr. Abenaki is playing push in the corner with the United States Customs, not to mention the cops from the country where the stuff was originally heisted. The stuff? The pearls. I found a dozen of them in his oysters. I can't figure out where they went to, though. You lost them? Yeah, to a hole in my pocket. I was leaning over the counter right here. Now, they could have rolled along, but I I didn't find them on the floor. They should have dropped right down here like... Hmm. Who put that bowl of soup on the stool? I did. That's Mr.
16: Abenaki's oyster stew. I always leave it there till he's ready for it.
14: You do? Yes. Did Mr. Abenaki have oyster stew tonight? Sure. He has a couple of bowls with each meal. Ferdinand, I got to make some phone calls to the cops for a squad car in the Bellevue hospital for a stomach pump.
16: You mean Mr. Abenaki is a
14: smuggler? Somebody around here is, and he looks like it. I'll let the cops nail it down.
16: Well, that's too bad, isn't it?
14: About Abenaki, why? He deserves what he's got coming to him.
16: Yes, but I'm afraid you don't. Now, please put up your hands, Mr. Fortune. You see, we wouldn't want the police around. The Clam House has to think of its reputation. But your gun is loaded. Barney? Sure, boss. Take this gun and keep him covered. With pleasure. Then it's you. I suppose it is. Barney, uh, could Captain Duran arrange a special trip on the Polly B? (laughs)
14: Easy.
16: Well, we'll have to be careful where we drop you. It wouldn't do to spoil the oyster bed. Mr. Abenaki wouldn't like it. Couldn't you just maroon me on a desert island? Please, Mr. Fortune, be practical. Now, we're going out through the kitchen door. Barney, you go first. Sure thing, boss. Coast is clear. Barney! Barney, what happened?
14: Probably this.
15: Rocky? Rocky, all right?
14: Sure, how's Barney? Oh, he's out cold. What did you hit him with?
15: A frozen flounder.
14: You know it was Fred Man all the time? The waiter? Sure. He got to the oysters before Abernaki. That reminds me. Who where are you going? You call the cops. I gotta tend to something. <laughs> I help you. Mr. Abenaki, you had an oyster stew earlier this evening. Uh, I did. Uh, please pass the ketchup. Look, I, I don't want to disturb you, but there were a dozen pearls in that stew. Oh? I thought the oysters were somewhat gritty. Now, we've got to get those pearls back wherever they are. Is that all? You've got them. I, I suppose I have. In the midsection. More or less. I'm going to send for a stomach pump right away. Oh, that won't be necessary. I I have them in my vest pocket. Yeah, Are these the pearls? You mean you didn't eat them? Goodness, no. I almost lost a filling on the first one, though. I thought I was just lucky. You're sure these pearls belong to you? I'm positive, Mr. Abenaki. Well, if they're yours, take them by all means. Oh, and uh, young man. Yeah? Ask
4: somebody to bring me another piece of pie.
14: Somebody else gets the pie. Me? I'm in the mood to relax. The Rover boys are safe in the walk-in refrigerator. The 12 pearls have come home to Papa. And I'm alone with Iris, who's wearing a flannel skirt and a little boy's shirt, which never looks like that on no little boy. Well, Rocky? Honey, I think maybe you saved my life. Would you like to claim a little reward?
15: What kind of reward?
14: It can be. Closer. Oh. Uh-uh. Baby, I've got something for you.
15: Here. The pearls. Well, honey. Hmm? I've got something for you. Yeah? What? A property receipt from the U.S. Customs Department.
14: You... Mm. You... You're a...
15: Cop. Good night, Rocky.
14: Good night. <laughs> Frank Sinatra as that footloose and fancy-free young man known as Rocky Fortune. Others in the cast included Lynn Allen, Jack Crucian, Jack Nestle, Lou Merrill, and William Orner. Andrew C. Love directed. Eddie King speaking.
1: That's Frank Sinatra as Rocky Fortune in Oyster Shaka from October the 6, 1953. In a moment, I'll tell you what's coming up on the next Mystery Theater.
3: And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.
1: Be sure to join me next time on Mystery Theater when we'll hear Dragnet, The Hermit's Cave, and Broadway is my beat. This is your host, Christopher Lee, saying thanks for tuning in.
0: You've been listening to Mystery Theater with your host Christopher Lee. The producers of Mystery Theater wish to thank this station and Radio Spirits for helping make this series possible. This copyrighted radio series is written by Dennis Etchison. Jim McCants speaking.